And for the rest of us, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans 9. It's been a great joy to sing with you and to hear you singing. Uh, thank you so much for that. Uh, I couldn't wait to preach this morning and uh, to go through this passage of Scripture. I was chomping at the bit, so glad we're finally here and ready to go. Um, if uh, you uh, want to follow along by way of a handout, there are handouts in the bulletin for you. You can find one of those and take notes uh, and to follow in that way, I will uh, go through the outline in the PowerPoint as well. So hopefully that helps you follow along. I do encourage you to have a Bible today too. Um, we're going to not only be in Romans 9, we're going to go to about five or six different passages. A bit unusual for a Sunday morning, but there's a lot of explanation that needs to go on today. Uh, so uh, you might want to dust off one of those Bibles in the, in the chair in front of you if you need it. And uh, that will be helpful uh, as well. We're going to look at Romans chapter 9. Uh, before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, we've already come before you corporately to pray on multiple occasions. But before we consider your word this morning in the preached word, uh, we first want to acknowledge your power. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. We also proclaim the power of your word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. God, we admit to you that we are of, we are, uh, of the flower that fades and falls. Our existence will come and go, but we know what we consider this morning, your word, it will stand forever, forever. Even when the earth and heavens give way, your word will continue forever. Help us to understand your word. Help us to submit to it. Uh, today we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we uh, began to uh, look at texts that defended God against any blame for the failure of contemporary Israel. Paul uh, demands his readers in Romans 9 not place the blame on God. Now, God is completely reliable to his promises. And so if we struggle with the rejection of Israel, then we need to know that God never promised to save every Israelite person. For, as the text says last week, not all Israel, not all those who are ethnically Israelites, belong to Israel, belong to the faithful Ethnic people of Israel to whom God's promises relate. And uh, this is the way that God has chosen to work throughout time. He has chosen some for his covenant promises, and he's extended to those covenant mercy and grace and favor. Now, to give further credence to that idea about God's reliable, right, reliability and his choice to bless people, 
God gave, or Paul gave two illustrations in Romans 9, 6 through 13. Paul not only wants his readers to know that this is how it is with the descendants of Israel, it's also true of the grandfather and the father of Jacob. We started last week by considering the top bubble on the chart here, Abraham and his two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And we noticed in the text that Paul's point is that not all of Abraham's children qualified to be his called seed or offspring, and that it was only through Isaac, the son of promise, that the offspring would be called. This Sunday, we're going to look at Isaac and his two sons, right in the center of the chart behind me. And we're going to consider Isaac's two sons, uh, Jacob and Esau. And the point will continue to be that God chooses some, Isaac, Jacob, faithful Israelites, and some are not chosen, Ishmael, Esau, and the unfaithful Israelites. Now our subject today uh, concerns the single most important topic ever addressed. It has to do with your view of God. The most important topic ever addressed. And nothing is more important for you. I wish that every person could hear this or at least truly consider Romans 9, 6 through 13. I wish that every politician, whether Republican, Democrat, or Independent, would hear and consider this. I wish that every celebrity would consider Romans 9. I wish that every professional sports athlete would consider this. I wish that every builder and every lawyer and every banker, every teenager, every adult, every homemaker, and I wish that every person from every tribe or nation could consider what we are going to talk about today. And so I encourage you to pay close attention to what this text has to say. Within uh, verses 10 through 13, Paul builds off the example of how it was with Abraham's son by drawing attention to Isaac's son. Now, uh, one of the ways you can see this, if you look down in your Bible, you can see he's got two illustrations. Look at the beginning of verse 7. It's translated, and not. And then look at the beginning of verse 10. And not only. See, there are two illustrations, Abraham's sons and Isaac's sons. Abraham's sons are verses 7 through 9. Isaac's sons, verses 10 through 13. And so as we uh, go throughout this passage, what we're going to learn today is we're going to see that it starts with a conversation and that it ends with a confirmation. That's the two-point outline, just a two-point outline, but hey, this it's only a two-point outline, but this could take a little bit of time. Okay, so don't get too excited. It starts with a conversation, I want you to see that. Um, at verse uh, 10, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Now, 
skip ahead because this is a long and complicated sentence, but go to verse 10, or I'm sorry, verse 12. It says, she was told. Okay, so the nub of the sentence is, when Rebecca had conceived children, she was told. And so uh, verses 10 through 12 is a lengthy sentence about an ancient conversation that Paul wants to bring to our mind, a time when Rebecca uh, had a conversation with God. After that, in verse 13, we'll see a final confirmation of what Paul thinks the main point of the conversation was. Okay, so that's an important distinction to make, and I'm going to uh, continue to address that as we go throughout. Now, looking at the conversation, <clears throat> there are three things about this conversation, verses 10 through 12, I want to point out to you. First, the timing of the conversation. The timing of the conversation is what verses 10 and 11 uh, A are about. The first part of verse 11 says, so look at that. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done neither good or bad. Okay, we'll stop there. So I want you to see the timing of this conversation. Paul reminds us that God's conversation with Rebecca took place when she had conceived, but before her sons were born. Now, to understand this a little bit more, we have to consider first who's Rebecca, right? And review just a minute. Who's Rebecca? She's, she is the daughter-in-law of Abraham and Sarah. She is the wife of Isaac. And I think she's used in this illustration uh, because it, it answers anyone who would object to the first illustration about the way that God normally works. Now, how might someone object to the first illustration of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and their sons? Well, they might object that God's promises were always only intended for the descendants of Sarah through her womb. And Hagar's an outsider, and so it's it's not really a good illustration. It's, it's helpful in a certain point, but it doesn't prove everything you want to prove. That God is free to choose whoever he wills. And so in this one, uh, we come to uh, an illustration where you have the same mother. So Paul responds here with twin boys from the womb of one mother. Her name is Rebecca. And nothing distinguishes these boy from e- boys from each other in the womb. They have the same father and mother. You can see that in uh, verse 11 when it talks about the, them coming by one man. Actually, it's verse 10. She'd conceive children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Now, something interesting about that little phrase, by one man, it's literally by one. And the point that many of the commentators would point out is it's not just that Paul has one man in mind or one woman in mind, but he has one act of conception in mind as well. That is, these boys were both conceived at the exact same time. Could they be any more alike? No. Well, that's the timing of the conversation. God talks to Rebecca after the boys are conceived when they're still in her womb. That leads us to the essence of it. What is uh, the, what did God say? 
And Paul recalls just a part of what God says in verse 12. So we're skipping the middle part of verse 11 for a second, and we're looking at the essence of the conversation. In verse 12, Paul recalls what God said. He said, the older shall serve the younger. And that is a citation from a passage back in Genesis. So this is the first time you need to turn. Go back to Genesis 25. Genesis 25. Remember that Bible you need to have? Okay, there should be one around you. Genesis 25. Uh, We're going to turn back there for just a moment and consider uh, the context of this statement. Um, Now, I normally put sticky notes in my Bible on the pages I need to go to, but I didn't do that today. I forgot. So I'm going to be turning with you. So you have to wait for me. Sorry. Uh, Genesis 25. And I want to look at verses uh, uh, 21 through 24. Genesis 25, 21 through 24. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. So in answer to Isaac's prayer, Rebecca conceives. By the way, this event takes place approximately 1800 BC. Write that down, think about that. I'm going to refer to that in a second. Around 1800 BC is when this ancient conversation takes place. Now Rebecca's pregnancy is so difficult that she inquires of the Lord about what's happening in her womb. Okay, yes, she is a new mother. Probably the first time ever experienced any, well, I think the first time she ever experienced any pregnancy. Uh, but she was experiencing more than usual pains in pregnancy. The Bible is a very vivid way of describing it. I remember preaching through Genesis. I made something of this, right? That the children, it says, were struggling within her. Now, I would remind you here that she doesn't know that she has twins yet before God reveals it. Remember, there are no ultrasounds and sonograms in the ancient world. She doesn't know she's going to have twins yet, but man, stuff's going on. Struggling. The word struggle is a strong, intense word. It means, in some context, it means to crush, smash, or break. So in the book of Judges, for instance, this word struggle is used to describe Abimelech's skull being crushed by a large millstone. Strong word. In Isaiah, it's used of reeds that are broken or smashed, and so these babies were tormenting each other in the womb. Now, I'm sure it was reassuring to Rebecca to hear from God that there were twins in there. Oh, okay, that explains a lot. The wrestling matches every night in my womb. But then she hears that they would both become the father of large nations. I'm sure, again, that would be reassuring. Yet, uh, Paul only quotes the final part of the conversation, and that is, Paul says, the older will serve the younger. 
And it is that quote that forms the essence of the conversation that Rebecca has with God. I think Paul wants to highlight something about the character of God from this Old Testament story. And and this is, if you're, you're taking notes, there's a section where you put down a lesson about God. I think we can draw a lesson about God from this part of the text. And I would state it this way. God does not choose to bless on the basis of human expectation or cultural values and preferences. That's what we can learn about God this morning. This is how God does not choose. In their culture, everyone knew that the firstborn would give it, be given priority and significance. All other children would inherit less. All other children would be given less leadership and distinction. Yet God chose not in accordance with human and cultural expectations. He did it a different way. And the point that we begin to learn back in Romans is God is entirely free to do so as the sovereign ruler. He can choose whomever he wants. He's God. This means sometimes we will not understand the way God works. It might even go against the way that we think or according to our human values. But aren't you glad you're not God? Having to make all of these choices. If you wish you were God, I would encourage you to read the book of Job. It's a short little book in the Old Testament. There's this guy who loses everything, and in the middle of the book, he laments. He, he can't wait for an opportunity to have a face-to-face encounter with God to, to tell him what he thinks should happen. That's when he meets God in a whirlwind. Remember this? And Job first is overwhelmed at the job description of the sovereign ruler of the universe. But then secondly, Job repents in dust and ashes because he's not God. Sometimes things won't make sense to us in our life and according to our human values, but that's okay because we're not God. And he loved us so much, he sent his son Jesus for us. And nothing will separate us from that love. That's our first lesson about God. That's the essence of the conversation that Paul wants to highlight. God chose the younger son Isaac to hold a more significant role in salvation history and to experience the blessings promised through Abraham. That leads to the final part of the conversation, the point of it. And that's how I take the middle part of verse 11. Okay, so Paul's still referring to this ancient conversation, but he's going to give his own perspective, inspired by God, of course, in the middle part of verse 11, to show us what the point or purpose of it was. So look in the middle part of verse 11, and let's find this point. It says, uh, there's a dash there, and it says, in order that God's purpose of election might stand or continue. 
not because of works, but because of him who calls. Okay, so the material in the middle of verse 11, between the dashes, is like a parenthesis. It's a parenthetical comment, but one that's significant and is worthy of our attention. We really need to pay close attention to this part between the dashes here. The point of this section is to show that God does not choose on the basis of human performance or human eligibility. Okay, And and so there's another lesson we need to draw about God. God does not choose on the basis of human works, performance, or eligibility. As you write that down, I want you to also think, if you can do two things at once, think about it. There is no human reason that you are saved sitting here today, hearing the word of God with an open heart, and your brother or sister is not. Or your mother or father. Or your aunt or uncle. You have not earned it. You didn't show God something in the womb. This is the way we kind of like to think about it though, right? Well, maybe he just saw the potential. I mean, because like I'm me, you know? You didn't earn it in the womb. You didn't do something your sibling did not know. In his great grace, God reached down to save you, and that's because he chose you. Like a quote my wife gave me from one of her Bible studies this week, she said, the question is not, why doesn't God save everyone? The question is, why does, save, why does God save anyone, especially me? And the answer to that, of course, is mercy. So when we struggle with questions about God's justice, we probably should reconsider passages about the sinfulness of men and women, boys and girls, of all humanity. No one deserves to be saved. Now, what I want to do, though, is I want to look a little bit more closely at the language here in verse 11 in the middle of the verse. Paul begins by saying uh, that this conversation happened when the twins were still in the womb, before either were born, before either had done anything good or anything bad. And in that setting, God, Paul reveals that God chose one boy to be greater than the other. I mean, I'm, I'm just telling you what the Bible says, okay? And God did this for a purpose uh, in Paul's writings. He says, in order that. So if you ask God, God, why did you choose one of the boys before they were even born? And why did you communicate that, that to their mother, Rebecca, in advance? God's answer would be, so that my purpose of election might stand. Now what we find uh, at this point has to do with the deep things of God and what God has planned or purpose. Now, the phrase God's purpose of election is something we should look at. First, this phrase, 
that could be translated this way, that God's purpose, send him for that, would be plan, was in accordance with election. And uh, he's concerned that these things would stand. Uh, now, this is the exact opposite of how he started this whole paragraph. It's been two weeks since we looked at it. He says, it's not as if God's word has failed. Verse 6. And here he's, he's saying, God did it in such a way so that his purpose of election would stand. Not fall, but stand. Now, another passage is helpful here with this phrase, uh, uh, God's purpose of election, and it's Luke twenty-two, twenty-two. So you could write that down. You don't need to turn there. I'll read it to you. It says, The Son of Man is setting out on his road in accordance with what has been decreed. In that passage are two relevant parts to the verse. Jesus setting out on a road and what had been decreed. And Jesus' actions setting on the road, conform to what had been decreed. In our passage, this little phrase, God's purpose in choosing Jacob confirmed to election. In other words, God's plan followed election, God's choice in eternity past. His plan or purposes grew out of election. This shows that the choices of God, uh, while always righteous and holy, are absolutely sovereign, bound in perfect conformity to his purposes in election. Now, next, Paul takes things further and he makes the, the lesson about God that I've already given to you clear. He says, now, these things took place not... Because of works, but because of him who calls. I, I don't think Paul could be any clearer. God's purposes are not determined by any human quality, any human performance, any merit. It is not because of works. That's the point of the conversation as I see it. It's the purpose. Now, we're not done, and I still have... 15 minutes left. So, the next thing that Paul does is he gives confirmation of the point of this ancient conversation that he brings. And this will further and strengthen what he's been saying all along. In verse 13, he says it this way. As or just as it is written... So, uh, verse 13 is a confirmation. Paul's final authority in his own views is the Bible. And so he's got a text in mind. He quotes a part of Malachi 1, verses 2 and 3. And the quote is, Jacob I loved, but Esau I've hated. In other words, Paul's saying, I want to give you a final clincher that just proves the whole point I've been making, that God chose Jacob, not Esau. Here it is, Malachi chapter 1. So turn back there in your Bible. This is the second one. It's going to pick up in speed, don't worry. Malachi chapter 1. 
Now, if you're looking for Malachi, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament Scripture. Okay, Malachi chapter 1. And uh, we're going to look at uh, this together as well. Now, when I consider this phrase, Jacob I love, but Esau I've hated, I've been around long enough, I've preached enough settings, I've preached on Romans enough to know that when we get to this point, there can be a lot of questions. And so I think it's important for us to slow down, look at it in its original context, and then see what Paul's doing with it. Okay, so what I want to do is I want to just look at the first five verses of Malachi chapter 1. Malachi 1.1 says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, How have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I love Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom, or the descendants of Esau, says, we are, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. The book of Malachi contains prophetic oracles from a prophet by the name of Malachi. Let me give you just a little bit of background to help you with these five verses here, these first verses of the book. Uh, Malachi ministered among the Israelite people after they returned from exile near the end of the Old Testament era. Malachi truly is not, he's not only the last biblical book in the Old Testament, he's he's likely the last uh, writing prophet to minister in the Old Testament period. So he occurs right at the end of the timeline here. The the, uh, people of Israel have already been back after their exile for over a hundred years. They've rebuilt. You could read Ezra and Nehemiah and learn how they rebuilt the city and the walls. And then after that, you could read Haggai and Zechariah to see how they rebuilt the temple. The temple even had been rebuilt. And so these people are living in Jerusalem, enjoying a rebuilt city with rebuilt temple. But the Israelites were very corrupt. And so Malachi keeps confronting them through a series of nine arguments between God and them. He will say something about what God did or how he cares for him, how he loves him or something, and then he'll always use this phrase. This is where you find those nine nine disputes. But you say. God says this, he loves you, he cares for you, but you say. And then he points out something that they do to dispute it. Now the events found in Malachi's prophecy occur around 420 B.C. You might write that down and think about it because I'm going to make a point about that at the end of our sermon. In other words, what Paul's calling from this prophetic testimony about Jacob and Esau comes from around 420 B.C., roughly 1,400 years after Jacob and Esau were in the womb and born. So within Malachi's book, then, he front loads disputes between God and Israel, and he starts with the one that we just read. 
He starts with these disputes about God's love for them. And to show God's love for the people, he declares that God has indeed loved Jacob and his descendants, and he has hated Esau and the people of Edom. God has said this, I think God is proving it throughout here, that that sort of love and hate relationship is undeniably true by the fact that Edom now, 1,400 years later, lies in ruin, and they couldn't even rebuild themselves if they tried. The people of Israel, however, are enjoying life in a rebuilt civilization and place. Now, it's this prophetic testimony about how God cared for Jacob and not Esau that Paul calls as a final confirmation of God's election of Jacob. So now what I want to do is I actually want to look at the words of that phrase on that screen there. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. We start with Jacob I loved. And from my experience, there's not a lot of people have a problem with this. We, lo- we like God loving people. Like that's a good thing. God loved Jacob. And uh, we have already proven in the book of Romans uh, over and over again uh, the, the way you could, you, you could demonstrate that. I mean, God gave Israel so many different advantages. But the next phrase, but Esau I hated, this, this, this is where it gets much harder. What does this mean, right? God hated Esau. How could that be? You say, I thought God loved all people. And so to many of us, when we get to this phrase, this kind of sticks in our throat like a bone. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. God hated Esau. What does that mean? Well, there are good explanations. There are at least two of them that I think are good because I've held them <laughs> at different times. Okay, now not that you couldn't say there's another explanation, but I think there are two that, I, for sake of time, there are two ways of explaining this that I think might be right, although you have to choose one or the other. Now, if you find a way to merge them together, tell me afterwards. We can have a fun lunch this week. Okay, first, some believe that when it says God hated Esau, it means God had less love for Esau than he did for Jacob. They explain this as less love or dislike instead of hatred. Uh, Remember, we're dealing with a Greek word that we're trying to translate into English. So they're saying the sense of the Greek word might be a little bit less than what we think of when we think of hate. Uh, So they feel the translation hate is too strong. Uh, Maybe it means that uh, God loved Esau less than Jacob. And there are good ways you can defend this view. And this is where we're going to turn to some other passages. So let me argue from this the way I would have a few years ago. Let's start with Luke 14, 26, and 27. There are three texts we're going to turn to. Luke 14, 26, and 27. Oh, and i got to turn there too. Luke 14, 26, and 27. So one of the ways you could defend this, that it doesn't really mean hatred the way we think of it in our culture today, but maybe it's less than love, or a little bit less love than Jacob, is Luke 14, 26, and 27. Now, look at verse 26. Luke is, of course, recording some of the preaching of Jesus. 
He summarizes what Jesus said. Jesus likely spoke in Aramaic. Luke is recording in Greek for us. Look at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So one of the questions, of course, readers in the English Bible struggle with here is, does Jesus actually expect us to physically hate our family members in order to follow him? But that's what we consider another passage. Go to, oh, whoops, and I have a slide. Go to Matthew 10, 37 and 38. Does Jesus actually demand hatred the way we would think of it today? If he does, we could all be in a lot of trouble. Matthew 10, verses 37 and 38. Now this is Matthew's translation of the same sermon of Jesus. Jesus speaks in Aramaic. Matthew's using Greek words. To convey that meaning to us, verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Here Matthew summarizes and translates the content of Jesus' sermon in a little different way. And one way that uh, might unlock one of the ways the word for hate can be understood. The point would be is that we're not actually supposed to hate our mothers and fathers, but that all our other loves in this world should look like hate when compared to the deep love and devotion that we would have for Jesus. So that's how I understand those two texts in um, Luke and Matthew, I I do think these passages are best explained by the word hate means less love than love for Jesus. So then in our text, the point would be, according to this idea, is God hating Esau means that he didn't love him in the same electing or salvific way that he did Jacob. Now, some also might add to that another argument, since you're in Matthew. I just thought, okay, we're just going to flip over there to Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, Matthew 5, and I just want to read a few verses. Verses 43 through 45. We're we're getting near the end here, but I want to get you these verses. Matthew 5, 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your, who? Father who is in heaven, for he, God the Father, makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Okay, so the way this passage goes is Jesus is dealing with false teaching about the law of Moses, and he's calling people to love their enemies. 
And the reason he compels them to do so, on what basis should they love their enemies, is because God or Heavenly Father does. He makes the sun shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. He gives rain to just and unjust. So be like your Heavenly Father. In light of all these things, some believe that the word hate does not mean absolute hatred, but something less than love. I think this is a good view, one that I've held before, uh, but I lean more towards another. So let's go into that. This could also mean God hated Esau. Others suggest that we should leave the sense as hate. Now, they suggest that this kind of hatred being described here is not human hatred. So they quickly say that we should separate this from all of you know this kind of divine hatred, from all the forms of wicked hatred that we've seen in our world today, all vindictiveness, right? All bitterness and bigotry. With God, his hatred would, would need to be righteous and holy, separate from any sin. Okay, so they would say divine hatred is never sinful in those ways. Now, to be honest with you, it's been hard for me to come to the second view, but this is where I find myself. And I'm going to tell you, although it was hard for me to come to this, I now hold this view with confidence and joy concerning God. Now, what matters the most, however, is not what I think. Right? I don't determine your views. You're like, you don't put an asterisk by number two, that's Pastor Brent's view, so that's good for me. What matters most is what the Bible says and the biblical evidence. And so, I'll give you the reason why, the reasons why I've, kind, I've, I've come this way. And then try to explain it to you a little bit more. The way I've come to this position is first to do a study of the word hate. The Greek term behind here and how it's used in the Bible. I'll just give you a few pieces of information that were helpful to me here. The word hate is found in 36 occurrences in the New Testament. 36. And in only one occurrence does it seem to mean something less than love. So while that's a possibility, in only one other place in the entire New Testament when it's used, I see it used that way. Normally, the word hate means to detest. Or to hate. Further, in several passages that speak of human hatred, we learn that things like this always accompany hatred. Rejection, exclusion, insults, and slander. So like you read through these texts, you're like, well, that's hate. Again, that's describing human hatred. But it seems to me to, to say, well, this isn't less than love. Further, in the word study I did, in Eight other New Testament texts, love and hate, are used together. And in those eight other places where love and hate are used, they're always used as stark contrast with one another. Not different shades or tones of love. If you want the eight passages, you can come to me. I give them to you this week. These truths compelled me to leave the translation as hate, but how could that be true? Well, for me, the way that uh, I was helped to see this was to remember that Malachi's later testimony reflects God's perspective of Esau 
and the people of Edom some 1,400 years after God spoke to Rebekah about the twins in her womb. So in the 1,400 years since God spoke of his choice of Jacob, the descendants of Esau have confirmed with their wickedness and rebellion against God. They've confirmed this wickedness and rebellion so that Malachi could describe God's demeanor at that time toward them as hate. I think this fits with other teachings of Scripture about how God views the wicked or the unrighteous. Just And honestly, I'm just going to give you a few here. because For sake of time, I just can't give you all of them, right? Psalm 5, 5 and 6. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. That's what the psalmist says. Here's another. Psalm 11.5. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Psalm 95. 10 and 11. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said about them, they are a people who go astray in their heart. They've not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. See, men and women, the scriptures are clear in these places and others like them that God is indignant He is angry with sinners who reject his son, demonstrating wickedness and sin in various ways. The psalmist, you remember Psalm 2. If you didn't like these other psalms, you may remember Psalm 2, where at the end of the psalm, the psalmist encourages the readers, says, kiss the son. Why? Lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is kindled quickly. Well, now that's a view of God we don't hear preached very much. Okay, now and I'm a preacher, I'm maybe condemning my own but that's a view of God and we don't hear much. This also coheres, I think, with how God further described how he had laid waste the hill countries of Edom and how he would continue to tear down anything they built because his anger is continually against Esau and Edom. In other words, I couldn't help but, but translate this and keep it as hate. So God not only hates sin, in some cases at least, he hates sinners too. Now, that's probably going to destroy something that you've been taught over the years. Not, probably never from here, but some of you have, of course, been taught what God hates sin but loves the sinner. Right? So I'm just going to leave you to wrestle with this for a while. I've been wrestling all week. I mean, over and over again about how to go through this. Like, it's your turn. I put it right on you. Whatever you do in wrestling with it, though, however, let the text or texts, determine what you believe. 
Not your mind. Not your human values. Not your expectations. And this is going to be difficult for some of us. One of the things I've noticed as a pastor is the older we get, the less likely we are to ever change our views. So with uh, elderly people, I'm going to say anyone over the age of 50 because I'm not 50 yet. Close. Yeah, you're welcome. For many of our elderly people, they've, they've thought one way about things for so long that they become inflexible to consider something else. For many of them, they would rather maintain their views and be wrong than change things they deem to be so significant. Another way of saying that is they would rather refuse to submit to what God says about themselves so that they can maintain their own way of thinking about things. Now, that's not only true of elderly people. My pastoral encouragement to you is don't do that. Matter of fact, I'll say it strongly. You must not do that. Instead, submit your view to God's word, not your own word. Now, you might ask, in conclusion, so what, pastor? What does it matter that I believe these theological things you've been talking about? And I'm glad you asked the question. Let me give you just four quick concluding reasons. These are very quick. Why this view of God, these view of God's we're describing in Romans are important. First, they're important because it accurately portrays God. Okay, you're going to have to compare what I say to Scripture, and if it's what Scripture says, it's accurate portrayal, it would be important for you to obey the Bible. Number two, that's not only the case, but this view of God In fact, how he deals with sin and sinners serves to accentuate grace and love and the cross. To use that classic illustration, maybe heard, you know, one of a hundred preachers used before, black velvet cloth, diamond ring right in the center. Why do they do that? The dark backdrop accentuates a diamond. Right? If we can see that God is continually angry with unbelievers who rebel against Him and His Son, then the fact that He would save us through the cross would become even, even sweeter. He would save anyone. So what? This view of God, I think, would ignite our zeal for evangelism. You see, the people around us, they're not going to be okay. They're not going to be okay. They need salvation. From what? From God. And His wrath. If we hold these views, I think we see unbelievers differently. I heard uh, Stephen Lawson preach uh, this week, and he said, uh, he said uh, you don't hear many sermons like Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God anymore. And Lawson said, maybe that's why we're not seeing awakenings, like the great awakening that was stoked through the preaching of Jonathan Edwards. One last reason. When I see God's approach to sin and sinners, 
it should cause me to hate my own sin. If I truly get this, then I will not be casual regarding my own sin. Sure, I'm secure in Jesus, but God hates sin and sinners. I must see my sin as the evil and the wickedness that God opposes. As we close, you might be thinking, I don't know if that's right. You might ask, what shall we then say? Is there injustice on God's part? And I say, that's exactly where Paul goes next. So if you're wrestling with these things and you're struggling with them, no, we're not done. We built one rung in the argument and Paul continues. In the meanwhile, know this. God may not act in accordance with human expectations or cultural values. And God does not choose anyone on the basis of human merit or eligibility. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this time together. And I pray that you would be honored as we close. Thank you for the patience of everyone to to work through this text. It's Lord, it deals with the most significant topic ever addressed. Every person needs to hear this. Every person. Lord, first help us to hear it. Help us to see what our sin is and how much that bothers you. And then, Lord, help us to understand the fate of unbelievers around us. Subject to your wrath. Presently. Stirring your anger. And Lord, would you help us to submit to this perspective of you. You freely choose according to your own sovereign will. And we'll thank you, Lord, for this. And as we close in song, we pray that you'd be honored and glorified through the rest of this service. In Jesus' name, amen.